Welcome to Uncertain Things. This is three in the morning and co-host Vanessa is fast asleep, even though there is a band playing trombones literally outside our window right now. Peculiar. Also peculiar. We've been getting a ton of new listeners in the past couple of weeks. So welcome to Uncertain Things. We hope you take the time to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We don't judge. You can also find us on uncertain.substack.com. So again, welcome. This is Uncertain Things, and we are about to jump into the second half of our epic conversation, argument, debate with political scholar Yasha Munk about his book, The Identity Trap. The second half was recorded with, a, I think, maybe a two-hour intermission after the first half. And in, in, in that interim, we got ourselves further riled up and inebriated. So we... Off the gate, we start in an argument between me and Vanessa, which Yasha had to mediate. It's about the role, I would argue corrosive role, of essentialism in American politics, left and right. For context, listen to the first half. I, we hope you enjoy. And um, once again, we are Uncertain Things. We're on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we hope you stick around. Okay, so where we left off last time, we'd kind of gone through parts one and two of your book, uh, part one being an overview of the intellectual history um, that brought us to this identity synthesis place, uh, part two, kind of understanding how this relatively fringe academic uh, conversation brought was brought into the mainstream. Um, and obviously there's more that we could have unpacked there, but I feel like we did a pretty good job of starting to understand how these academic theories filtered. Um, we maybe hopped over some things like Tumblr and other kind of media, social oh, yeah. media. Your, the, the little aside on Tumblr was interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to leave all of my views, uh, about Tumblr up to readers to have to buy the book and read them <laughs> in first person. That sounds good. So then part three, examining how these theories are being applied and experienced on the left, how they're being perpetuated. Um, and part four, kind of, as you summed up in a previous conversation, kind of a defense of, of liberalism and why it matters. So, so let's start getting into the kind of part three area of conversation. Um, so I was particularly interested in this part because I think, as I confessed, I suppose, in the previous iteration of the episode, justice is something that has inspired me as a journalist. I have another podcast called Urban Roots, where I talk to people um, on the ground it, who have experienced some sort of injustice, uh, off, usually African-Americans, but not exclusively. But often we're talking about things like urban renewal and highway planning and the ways that their communities have been uh, negatively impacted by these decisions. And the whole premise of that podcast, in a way, is that we, we these stories matter. Their voices were ignored in the past. Um, but there's also a fundamental premise of that podcast that there's a there's a reason to tell their stories and that I guess human connection and empathy and understanding is important. Um, and we believe that by sharing their stories, you know, people that aren't African-American can 
understand the injustices done and can kind of be activated to think in the ways that our urban realms are often perpetuating injustices and hopefully think about ways that they can undermine them, right? So I'm, I was very interested in this, in this chapter because I guess I'm operating in this world where because I make this podcast, which is a very like lefty podcast, I suppose, um, there are certain ways that we're kind of privileged, like in an interpersonal level, when I talk about it with like people at the left, they're like, oh, that's such a great project. Like, I'm so glad that you're doing it, right? Like, like this, there seems like there's like a animus of this is this is the work that needs to be done in this century kind of a feeling. As we're, we're really small, we're like fundraising. And as we're having fundraising conversations, right, and we're putting in requests for grants, the fact that we concentrate on minority voices is something that is interesting to people. And I would say like the reasons that we've gotten money in the past, not that we're rolling in it or anything, but is because of that, that, you know, niche that we fill. Um, but, and at the same time though, when I was reading the chapter that kind of kicks off the part, part three about the, the importance of listening to these voices, but not necessarily believing that everyone else has to defer to these voices is kind of one of the points that you make. These voices, who are those big T, sure. big V, these voices? Yes. I mean, I mean, for me, it's, I'm very specifically talking about African-Americans in local sure, neighborhoods. African-American, what's African-American? What is sure. this singular unit? And who is the authentic speaker for African-Americans or for the Jewish experience? I've had this conversation about Jew face um, the other day with people who are, who are like, aren't you outraged about whatever the, the nose prosthetic in, I forgot. Bradley Cooper's movie about uh, Leonard Bernstein, yeah. Yeah, but Leonard Bernstein's like, as a Jew, as speaking for the Jewish experience, who the fuck is the Jewish experience? Give me a fucking break when you're talking about millions of people. In the, you, you can say about this is this particular person speaking for his particular neighborhood where race plays a role in the overall tapestry of identity. Sorry, sorry, I've jumped in. Sorry, so, Vanessa. <laughs> so just thinking about it, it was just interesting to read that chapter because I feel like I the, what I, the work I'm trying to do, even though it's of the left and in steeped in the, the kind of more lefty ideology, I feel like there's a, there's like a line that I try not to cross, which is that I, I fundamentally believe that people of all ethnicities, backgrounds, whatever can can understand and connect to other humans through story, through, you know, their brains and the rational argument and conversation. And so when when I see the kinds of the kinds of examples that you're bringing up, it's like what happens when. We, we put so much primacy on raising marginalized voices that we somehow the the ability for rational discourse kind of falls away. And I guess that's... No, it's not, it's that's not about a, raising marginal voices. It's about focusing on subjective narrative at the expense of any other kind of universal, um, uh, objectifiable experience. When we think that the that because we want to make sure that we give some account to the subjective and the different of a marginal experience, then we sometimes cross a line and say, and therefore there is no room for an objective shared experience or a benchmark by which we can all talk about the same kind of injustices and have a shared input. This is why it ties into the women vis-a-vis abortion question. I should take Adam along to, uh, you know, every uh, every podcast interview as my kind of uh, defense dog, you know. <laughs> no, I'm look to 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 speak to this. Um, this is one of the areas where the sort of more sophisticated 
uh, roots of some of these ideas really start to diverge to a popularized slogan that unfortunately right. have taken on so much political power, right? And so, uh, you know, this has its root in a series of first feminist and then uh, anti-racist reflections about, you know, how we know what we know. Now, if you go back all the way to René Descartes and the kind of origins of epistemology, of the philosophical reflection on how we can understand the world, they're very uh, sort of influenced by how our position in the world might narrow what we can know, right? And people understandably started to say, uh, you know, towards the middle of the 20th century in in, in sort of modern formulation, um, uh, you know, look, but but actually you as a woman might have different kinds of experiences as, as than I as a guy, right? Like you might be afraid of certain forms of uh, sexual harassment in a way that I'm much less likely to experience. Or you might have expectations on you that you want to be a mother or that you are sort of naturally prone to certain forms of caregiving that in a gendered society I as a man don't, don't encounter, right? And there's, I think, a lot of plausible... Uh, uh, it is really complicated, and there's questions about, you know, not all women, in fact, do experience those kind of norms. They certainly don't all become mothers and so on, right? This is, like, not at all straightforward, but there's something uh, intuitive about that set of thought, that what you know about the world might be deeply influenced by who you are, and that obviously a black guy growing up in New York probably has more visceral and direct experience of certain forms of police violence or of certain forms of fear that, uh, you know, a, a, a stop and frisk program might evoke in the residents of a neighborhood than, than, than a white guy growing up in New York, right? And, and all of that is plausible. And so I think the, the initial instinct to say, hey, when we're talking about urbanism, when we're talking about the transformation of our cities, let's talk to people who have different experiences from myself and who've lived through some of those things and understand their stories and 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 listen to sort of the kinds of aspirations we might have and the kinds of warnings we have about, about injustices to which we might be blind, to which, which we might not naturally see. All of that I, I agree with, right? The problem is that in the popularized form in which this has now become so influential, there's a bunch of assumptions that really go beyond that, right? And, and one of those assumptions is that, you know, there's just something essential that members of particular groups share, so that black people are always going to have an understanding of these kinds of things, even if perhaps you grew up as, you know, the son of a black billionaire or something like that, right? The second is that um, uh, on the whole, overall, the members of oppressed groups are going to have greater insights into the world than the members of oppressive groups. Now, uh, that might be true in certain kinds of circumstances, but it's not going to be true in other circumstances. So, for example, in most in the most extreme circumstance of injustice, if you are a member of a disfavored group, you may not have any access to education, right? And so therefore, certain forms of knowledge about the world are going you're going to be excluded from. So it's not clear that all things considered, you're going to know a lot more than everybody else. Perhaps you need to draw knowledge from both sides. And then, then the third part of this is that there's a difference between sort of a subjective experience of what it feels like and the kind of broader, more objective conclusions we might take from that, right? So I might be incapable of understanding what it feels like to walk down the street and worry that some cop is going to stop and frisk you. 
But that doesn't mean that I might not be able to understand some of the things that flow from that, such as the fact that I don't want to live in a society where just because your skin color is black, you're more afraid of a cops than I do. I think that's true in the States today, and that's an injustice. And even though I don't quite 100% know what it feels like to sort of have that single feeling of seeing a cop on, on, on the street, I can fully understand that, that, that normative takeaway and the kind of uh, call for action that flows from that. Um, so, so these are sort of the three main philosophical problems with the way in which standpoint theory has been operationalized. And then there's a political problem, which I think goes to the heart of what Adam was saying, which is that on top of that, the kind of uh, consequence that a lot of progressives have taken from that is, you know, you must decenter yourself, you must defer your judgment, you must outsource your judgment to others. So rather than you thinking, well, how can we reform the police in New York City in such a way that you know, everybody gets substantive protection from the police and that we reduce the crime that is, you know, unfortunately significant um, in a lot of American cities, but so that, you know, uh, our fellow citizens are not going to feel targeted or, or scared or, or brutalized by this. Um, you say, well, I don't understand any of this, right? And even if I have conversations, I'm never truly going to understand how somebody at a different intersection of identities sees the world. So I have to defer to them. I will let them speak for me. But that is going to go deeply wrong in a number of ways. The first is that Adam is saying, uh, you know, it's not clear what is the black point of view, the Latino point of view, the Asian point of view, the Jewish point of view, right? And there's the old joke, two Jews, three opinions or something like that. That's true of every group in the world. There's nothing unique about Jews in, in that sense, right? There's deep and fundamental disagreements about, uh, about politics within the African-American community, Right. Um, and the other problem is that actually when people claim to defer, they never actually defer. What they do is to pick somebody within that group whom they already agree with, and then they say, oh, I'm deferring to that group, right? But it so happens that if your politics is more moderate, you're going to say, well, the true spokesperson of uh, of, of African-Americans, let's say someone like Jim Clyburn. And if you're much, much more progressive and, and you know, quote-unquote woke, then you're going to say, well, the true spokesperson for people of color is AOC, right? And so my takeaway from all of this is, yes, absolutely, it is a valuable project to listen to voices. Part of what it takes to create a just society is to understand the limits of your own knowledge and to seek out conversations with people who might give us understanding for and empathy of the kind of... Um, uh, uh, experiences they have and the kind of demands they have. But ultimately, true political solidarity does not consist in deferring to you because you're part of a more oppressed group. It is evaluating what they tell you with an open mind, thinking about it seriously, and coming to your own conclusions about what a just society would demand. And that allows for a more real sense of political solidarity in which you and I have both recognized, perhaps for the same values or perhaps for slightly different values, that it's unfair for some people to be more afraid of a police than for others. And so we're mutually committed to building a society where that's not the case. That's a more, ins more, more inspirational, more ambitious, and I think more realistic account of what political solidarity looks like. I guess it's coming kind of going back to the conversation around strategic essentialism, right? And to what extent we want to employ this useful fiction for the, because as I'm thinking about like the stories that we've uncovered, there are there are patterns, right? There are repetitions. There are things that 
happen again and again in these different black communities that are completely black, different. And when you look into like the specifics of certain re- realities of what life was like under segregation, it's very different in Indiana than it was in, you know, Brooklyn. But it doesn't mean that there weren't patterns that repeated. And that's those are the things that I keep seeing again and again. And in that way, I feel like it is when, you know, I know Adam doesn't believe in there's such a thing as the African-American experience, but at some point, or rather any Jewish experience or whatever, but at some point there, you kind of need a vocabulary to to talk about it. Have you compared these patterns? Have you done the historical comparison of these patterns to any disenfranchised group and see whether these patterns persist specifically before no, blacks no, no, they, in they, they, Yeah, no, no, they persist. They persist across any gr- any group that doesn't have like power over their land. And there you go. That's the point. They're going, there's going to be patterns, but just historically in the U.S., obviously it's often the black people. Oh, okay, no, but again, but, but that's but that's why the essentialism is a canard in this case, because the experience is about, about a power relation and about what it means to suffer the long shadows of being a historically disenfranchised group, which is has real impact. That's the true or the useful inside of thinking in terms of systemic racism of course has this anything to do profoundly with race or is race just the specific guys and context in which this happened in the u.s because of america's racist history and that distinction is meaningful because one of them tells us that we need to look at the actual um, um, disenfranchisement and the inequality which is a much more traditional socialist interpretation and the other one is categorically racist and i mean that definitionally because it means that you are seeing race viewing race as this indelible aspect of human existence which is where this facile, frustrating, stupid obsession with let's only listen to the true voice of this or that group comes from. And I hate it because it practically buys into the 17th century construction of race, which is just an artifact of European imperialism, pseudo-scientific bullshit in defense of cruelty, conquest, and oppression. Yet somehow it seems that we've gone full circle and intellectualize our way into rehabilitating that pernicious crap all over again. So, so I'm going to to try and play a relationship counselor here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, Please the, do. I think there's a middle position between these different poles, right? So, 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 so on one side, you have somebody like Ayanna Presley, um, a Democratic congresswoman from Massachusetts, interestingly, you know, represents Somerville and, and parts of Cambridge, um, very progressive, but, but the highly educated, affluent and, and mostly white uh, district, um, saying at NetRoots in 2018, um, if you're not re- pre- prepared to represent that voice, don't come because we don't need any more brown faces that don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need Muslims that don't want to be a Muslim voice. We don't need queers who don't want to be a queer voice. So here's this really, you know, big idea, like the black voice, capital E, capital V. Um, and that I think is just deeply um, misguided. Um, uh, and what for was the context that for like, that? For that statement, where where was she and who was she and speaking Netflix to? was a kind of progressive political uh, activist conference. Um, okay, so she's so preaching she's to the choir. Saying, you know, we've had a bunch of political representatives who aren't sufficiently progressive, and they're not truly black, they're not truly brown, they're not truly queer, right? Okay. Um, and I think for reasons that Bayard Rustin, a great uh, hero of mine, a great civil rights hero, has pointed out is, is wrong because 
um, uh, because as he responds, um, or as, as he wrote decades before Ayanna Presley, the notion of the undifferentiated black community is the intellectual creation of both whites and of certain small groups of blacks who illegitimately claim to speak for the majority. And I think that's really clear in this American context where, you know, should we listen to African-Americans? Of course. Do I think that there's going to be certain common themes among the kinds of things that most, not all, but most African-Americans are going to say? Of course, in the same way in which you know, a lot of Jews have some shared experience of something like anti-Semitism, or perhaps also if you grew up in Germany, creepy philo-Semitism. Um, but, but, but that doesn't mean that all of them uh, share that. The, the consequences of what we should do about that are going to start to differ much more radically, right? And a lot of the time what happens right now is in progressive spaces, we cannot understand black people because they're at a different intersection of identity. So let's defer to them. So we have to defend the police. Like, hang on a second. When you actually look at opinion polling, for example, and what African-Americans believe, huge, not all of them, but huge majorities are deeply concerned about police violence. But also very clear majorities, not all of them, very clear majorities want more and better police in their neighborhoods because they know they need the police and they want police that they can rely on, that they know is going to treat them fairly. So again, I think that there's a kind of middle position here where we say, of course, there's going to be some common themes, but we need to be really, really careful. And this is not an abstract concern of these progressive organizations and circles speaking for and over others by claiming to truly represent them when they don't. 98%, I know it's a tired example, but 98% of Hispanics in this country do not like to be called Latinx. Every Hispanic advocacy organization in the country talks about Latinx. I'm sure it's not literally every single one, right? But that's because they come from a very different kind of social background. When I make this point with friends and acquaintances of mine, they say, what do you mean? I mean, I have seven black friends and they all want to defund the police. Um, you know, I'm slightly invoking this kind of, you know, I have a so-and-so friend cliche, but it's in part because, yes, these are people who went to fancy Ivy League universities and most of their friends have the same progressive beliefs they have. And so there's this availability heuristic where it's like everybody I know from that identity group believes this. And you may genuinely have people you know well from that identity group. The fakeness here is not claiming to have a black friend, is to think that the friends in your social circle are actually going to stand in a in a representative way for most members of those communities. And so then to go back to uh, Adam, I think race is going to be one of those uh, prisms that are helpful. But it's not the only prison that is helpful. So I'm sort of skeptical of the way that things work out in France, where, you know, there's clearly some racial discrimination, but there's such a taboo of thinking about it in terms of race that you channel everything through the perspective of class. I'm skeptical in the United States, where the primary prism is race. So even things that actually are class-based injustices, we see through the prism of, 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 of race. I think the right way of doing this is to be methodologically agnostic to say, you know, whether race or class or religion or um, ideology or other kinds of things, you know, explain a situation and how to understand reality is not a question of a pre-existing political or methodological commitment. It's a question of actually looking with an open mind at a particular empirical situation 
with those different kind of possible interpretive lenses in mind. And in some, perhaps in many contexts, race is going to be important in that, given American history and so on, right? But in others, what's actually going on is much more likely to be class. And it's striking, by the way, how many social science studies ascribe things to race without having any kind of class variable. That's as absurd mm-hmm. as ascribing things to class without having any kind of race variable. I agree. That was very well said, yeah. I, I think elements of the left are essentially kind of weaponizing um, this idea of of race and authenticity um, as a way of kind of leveraging power, right? They're deriving power from from the from these uh, narratives, from this ideology. I guess there's two things that's happened because it's it, it they did they didn't used to be a source of power. So I'm kind of curious when this tipping point exactly happened, where it became a source of power, and I'm also curious about when why there's a mythology that it's still the the fight is still as harsh and uh uh hmm. visceral as it was in the civil rights era right because there's like a twofold thing happening there was like there was some sort of chronological shift it's a source of power but we're still playing the card as if we weren't in in this position of power anymore so Vanessa, the question was sort of why is it that even though there's been progress on these things, the left doesn't feel like there's been progress on these things. Is that broadly right? Yes. Also, like when when did the shift happen when the left started to use this as weaponry in their arsenal, essentially, as a way of kind of whipping up support and leveraging power, like dere- derived from the idea that we we have the minority voices on our side kind of a thing. Um, and then, and yet at the same time, why do they, yes, insist on pretending like it's not a source of, of power and in right, fact, right. they remain so disenfranchised. Yeah, so I, so I do actually think that this is where the, uh, you know, chickens, uh, this is going to be a terribly mixed metaphor, where the chickens we invoked in the first part of a conversation come home to roost. Um, perhaps it's not even it's, a mixed metaphor, look at that. It's Chekhov's, Chekhov's um, chickens, really. Chekhov's chickens, exactly. Um, a, a, in two ways, right? The first is this idea that Spivak has of strategic essentialism, uh, which really then takes on this life of its own, this idea of like you have to, you know, the, 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 the nature of a good education is to make people identify as strongly as possible the voices and we really can't understand each other and all of those kinds of things. That sort of takes flight from that in a way that's really influential. And then the other strand of that is Derek Bell's permanence of racism, right? His claim that the only reason why something like Brown versus Board of Education happens is that it was in the interests of whites. And so in, therefore today, you know, uh, oppression may be more subtle than it was in the past, but it's no better than it ever was, right? And so I think that has been generalized to areas beyond race, right? I mean, according to GLAD, um, you know, homophobia is as bad in the United States today uh, as it was 30 years ago. But it's absurd if you know about, you know, the, the, the extent to which gay people were not visible in America, the extent to which they were discriminated against legally and openly, uh, not to mention the fact that something like same-sex marriage was unthinkable as recently as you know, 40 years ago or 30 years ago for that matter, right? Um, so uh, so I do think that these sort of basic roots of these ideas come in and they have to do, I mean, they both drive the ideological commitment, they also derive from the ideological commitment. Just to say that if you think that liberalism is responsible for everything bad in the world and that liberal democracies are, um, it, it, you know, are in, unsalvageable unless you just completely refound them 
when you can't acknowledge that progress, because that would indicate that liberalism allows you to make progress. So you have to be catastrophist, because when you say, hey, perhaps through gradualist reform and electing people like Barack Obama and, you know, uh, raising our voices when things are unjust, America remains deeply imperfect, there remain many troubling elements of a society, but you know what? Yes, life for African-Americans is better than it was 100 years ago in America. Life for gay people is a lot better than it was 40 years ago. Well, if you're saying that, then you're acknowledging that actually those forms of liberal reform might be able to do the trick. And and for a lot of people who, who think of a political self-identity as being opposed to those forms of liberalism, that's not a conclusion you can come to. So that's the sort of you know, injustice porn, where 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 the dwelling on injustice and sometimes the overstating of real injustices is ideologically validating. Yeah, I think I think a lot about of this the pessimism and the doominess of our current time and how destructive it is. It's like we've become addicted to uh, fight narratives and forgotten how to how to espouse and believe and build build narratives like this is this is one of the things that I think is most problematic that I think a lot of liberals aren't conscientious of I think they feel the doominess and the depression but they don't necessarily see the connection between this overwhelming uh like shit colored glasses and the demise of our country like that there are certain things that are very intangible about uh, cre- allowing a country to remain strong and united. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that are falling falling to the wayside because of the ways that we're just, we're thinking about our future. And, and that's, that's true at an individual level and at a political level, right? Individually, um, yeah. you know, my friend Ibu Patel talks about this really compellingly, and I sort of always bring it up in this context, which is that um, you know, he was very attracted to some form of identitarian philosophy in college because it helped him make sense of certain real experiences of discrimination he had. But he felt that it, that it really tempted him to this destructive attitude. Uh, and he tells the story of when he went to sort of critique the play of a professor who was sort of a mentor of his and sort of said, you know, this is, this is completely, you know, this is a black woman who had put up this play and said, you know, this is actually sort of oppressive because... Um, you know, all the kids in this play have their own rooms. What about families where the kids don't have their own rooms? You know, that kind of like the dumbest kind of form of woke critique, right? And and the professor very graciously emailed him afterwards uh, and said, look, it's your prerogative to criticize, but why don't you try and do better, right? It's hard to build things. So if you feel this is wrong, why don't you try and build something? Because that's more worthwhile and that's more difficult. Um, and he really said shit, you know, like that got, got to something about how some of these helpful tools have misled me into just an attitude that's not going to do anything good for the world and that's not very fun for me as a person. And he talks about that today. He's, he's Muslim-American and he talks about getting angry at his uh, kids' teachers because they ask his kids to share about... Um, uh, being Muslims, and they, I think we talked about this briefly earlier, right? And they just want, to, want them to talk about what's terrible and just. Right. And it's ironic, um, too, because, than, yeah. yeah, theoretically, you know, it's also part of this ideology is like straight white men will never understand. And it's it's interesting that there's so, so much impetus and emphasis put on like eliciting people's ethnic background stories when at the same time there's an understanding that nobody will truly understand it. It's, it's kind of ironic that these are competing <laughs> forces at play. 
Yeah, and a lot of it is just it's it's just internally self-contradictory, right? I mean, in the the popularized version of that, in the less sophisticated version of that, a lot of it is just like you know, you have to ask members of marginalized groups to speak for themselves and to take up space. But if you ask them to do that, then you're extracting emotional labor for them, and you're really, you know, it's like so, you know, which is it? And I understand that there can be an, an extreme of either, but but it's just a lot of the time these really just then become. Not very sophisticated slogans, which 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 are just unhelpful. Uh, arguably, very sophisticated slogans that are unhelpful. <laughs> arguably, potentially. So. Uh, and this brings me to my my question of intention and where all this comes from. Much of what we're seeing is the result of a mix of ignorance and lazy thinking or a much more sophisticated such psychological process, I think is my probably, I don't know if it's the most important thing to figure out, but, but it is definitely something that troubles me a lot. Uh, I got reprimanded by one of my harshest critics. Um, it's my mom as a listener <laughs> to the podcast. Um, she listened to our interview with James Kirchhoff. And which you keeps... say there's no universal Jewish experience? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> QED. <laughs> That's not always the case, but she listened to the James Kirchhoff, um podcast and, and she was she thought uh, we, we've been awfully generous with um, discussing the complexities of uh, the gender discourse um, as it is today. I think... Partly because I'm, uh, I when I'm thinking about the the left, I'm al- almost always as- ascribing the best of intentions because I see myself as part of the left and I see myself as being well intentioned, and so I, I think I often project it onto people on on the left, saying like, surely, surely they really want to change the world, and it's all coming from a really good place, and I think. That was my position in the Jamie conversation. Adam was a bit more muted. Or, or well, I'll let you continue how you were yeah. explaining it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty pretty accurate. I, but I think actually your framing is even more on point because Vanessa, because from the in the left, when you hear, and I'm talking the left of 15 years ago, uh, the John Stewart left. Okay, when John Stewart would criticize the Republicans, there would be an assumption of something sinister. They're tackling welfare because they hate poor people. That's the subtext. It's not a subtext of their, they, they have a different version of how to make the economy grow. They're just wrong or, you know, we're, uh, there's an assumption that, you know, there's some underlying class struggle that they are inflicting on America. Whereas when Democrats did something wrong, it was because they were stupid. They don't get that they are too messy to live up to the promise of their good intentions. So now back to my mom, who will never call herself that, but is de facto a a prominent feminist in Israel in many ways. She would say, fuck that. Fuck that. Why are we giving this credit to a movement that in its actions, in its actions, in its behaviors, in in its pathologies, is creating its own set of discriminatory practices, is harming people, is eliminating people from public conversations, and is trying to create its own new alternative power structure, which is as abusive, as oppressive 
as what they claim to to deconstruct, just set up in a different way? Why are we giving it the credit, the benefit of the doubt of good intentions? Not to say that what they're thinking in their heart is, ha ha ha, we will build a new empire of darkness. We will be more Republican than Republicans. The point is that you would never give Republicans this benefit of the doubt or this benefit of possible good intentions because it doesn't really matter what's at the bottom of their heart. What matters is the world that they're creating. Ironically, this is a line that people on the left use a lot, that intentions don't really matter. All that matters is your policy outcomes, right? So my mom's point was, why the hell are you giving the left this grace of good intentions? So many of our attempts to hold the left accountable are couched in this framework of, if only they understand that the the results that they are getting are almost the exact opposite of of the outcomes they claim to seek, then they they would change their behaviors. But maybe maybe it's just not fucking about that. Well, I have a few thoughts. The first is that I I generally believe in the sort of slogan that you know, don't explain by malice what you can explain by incompetence. Just as a general guide to the world, you know, Veep is closer to the truth than House of Cards. Um, if you want to understand American politics, yeah, yeah, for example, I, I, right? I, I agree and, with that in the theory, yeah. And, and as a psychological kind of interpretation, most people are the heroes in their own stories, right? Like most people have a narrative where what they're doing in the world is good for themselves probably, but also good for others and good for the world as a whole. And I think that doesn't mean we should be naive towards those kinds of claims. A lot of people are doing very bad things for the world, but I think to actually understand what makes people tick and how they perceive the world, it's important to understand that they have a narrative in their own mind, but actually has some kinds of side constraints as to how they're acting in the world and why. And you're going to be able to predict how they behave better by taking that self-conception seriously than by ignoring it. But it doesn't mean that if their interests shift radically, they can't reconstitute their narratives in ways that allow them to pursue their own interests, right? You don't have to be naive about it. But I do think that the number of people who are like, yes, I'm making the world a worse place and I don't give a shit because it's in my interest, that's just not that many people. They exist. They largely have what psychologists call dark personality triads. And some of those kinds of people are attracted to ideologies that give them cover. And that certainly is something that exists in the far right, but also exists in the far left. And there's some interesting suggestive studies that show that. But that is not where where most of the action is. Those are the people that would switch sides very easily when the opportunity arises. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 So the next thought I have is that uh, you know, this is a matter also of, you know, who's persuadable, right? Like I think of myself as as, as as a writer and an academic and sort of a public actor in certain ways. And what I'm trying to do is to persuade people who are persuadable. Now, some people are not going to be persuadable, but the people who are persuadable are ones who do have good intentions. And so that's sort of who I assume as my reader. It's pointless to assume as my reader of a person who isn't persuadable anyway, right? But I think the most fundamental response, I know I've given three responses now, the fourth and most fundamental response is what really matters is not what somebody's secret intentions are. I think for deep methodological reasons, we, we don't really know about that anyway. And I go back to somebody like Quentin Skinner thinking about how to write history of political thought. And, you know, we don't know what, you know, what the intentions were, you know, what the deep reason was why Thomas Hobbes wrote The Leviathan. And perhaps he wanted to make sure that he keeps getting money from the guy who was sort of paying him. Or perhaps he had some girl he was in love with who, who might be impressed by the book. Who knows? 
that's not ultimately the most important question. The important question is like, what's the nature of his ideology? What is it that he's actually arguing for? What is he trying to express in writing it, irrespective of why it is that he's writing it? I think that's similar here. But the really important question is, what is the nature of this ideology? And where I am quite clear and harsh on this ideology is that it's not a question of it's going too far in the right direction or it's, you know, being too radical in pursuit of good ideas, right? For all of the understanding I can have for the intentions of many of the people who've coined these ideas, for all of the historical circumstances which make a lot of these moves understandable in their context, ultimately, you know, the identity synthesis is fundamentally and deeply opposed to the kinds of principles that I think are going to build a better society. And so I think the people who oppose it need to be very clear about that, but also that the way to persuade is not to say, and everybody who disagrees with me is an asshole, or everybody who disagrees with me is insincere, but to actually say, no, some of my readers, hopefully, are sincere in, in what they believe, and they do disagree for sincere reasons, and so perhaps they are, in fact, open to that kind of persuasion. And, you know, one of the things that makes it tempting to think there's never any persuasion is that nobody ever changes their mind in the middle of one conversation. But when you look at people over the course of their lifetime, many people do fundamentally change their minds. And when you look at what's pervading in public discourse, that does shift fundamentally as it has over the course of the last decade. And so I believe in the prospect of persuasion, both at the individual and at the collective scale, over a 10-year period even if I don't think that anybody is going to listen to you know, this podcast or anything else I do to promote this book and say, oh, wow, I completely renounce everything I believe and now I've changed. That's not how persuasion works. So that doesn't mean that, it, that it's not part of an effective strategy for standing up for the values that I think are going to you know, allow us to build better societies. I, I think this was a, a wonderful statement that I agree with everything you said. But I think that I am being a little inarticulate in what I'm trying to get at. Let me be clear. I think this is the correct approach. I want to wave this flag and, and give you all my moral endorsement. I, I'm sure that this is the right moral way to go about it. And I want to believe that this is the effective one as well. So all the thumbs up. But I, I'm not saying that this is primarily led by people who are nihilistic or power hungry and merely recognize that this is their chance to grab power. This is an effective strategy to grab power. Some people are like that. Those are sociopaths. They exist, and they are disproportionately represented in Congress. And that's fine. That's the nature of the beast. Offices of power will attract people who crave power, and that's why we have systems in place to restrain this ambition. That's not what I'm talking about. My internal struggle, and I'm, I'm gen truly putting this to you as something that I'm, I'm working out with myself and I don't know where I stand, so, may, so I, I hope for some clarity from you, is on the analytical side, from me trying to understand what am I dealing with and what is this phenomenon that, that you call the identity synthesis, where all this legacy of ideas um, filtered through social media and, and Tumblr and, and the, the passions of the past 20 years and the Trump era and leading to some really terrible consequences from crime to unresolved uh, inequalities to the restrictions of civil liberties. Is this phenomena, does it have at its roots a shared, a shared worldview with us? Do we agree on some vague ends and somehow we fractured in 
the the epistemological understanding of how to get there. Maybe there is some fundamental mis- disagreement about human nature. We think that there is such a thing as a fundamental shared universal human experience. They might disagree. But ultimately, we all know what kind of world we'd like to live in. There is some notion of justice that we share. Or are we dealing with something that is categorically different, where we can't even agree on the ends? And that's been rankling me while reading your book. Because you do seem to assume that there is some sort of comedy of ends, and people just got confused along the way. And this question kept ringing ringing in my head, so I ended up buying a few books in order to read um, different perspectives on this problem, including Laura Kipnis's Unwanted Advances and McWhorter's Woke Racism and, um, I forgot his name, uh, Wilford Riley's book, just to get different perspectives or different interpretations of what is the phenomenon that we're dealing with. And... I got to say, the McWhorter argument that this is not a religious movement as an allegory or as a, as a convenient rhetorical maneuver, but it but really is just a religious, almost Protestant movement, is, is very convincing. And if this is the case, then all the conversations that we're having now are moot. So I, I really like John. I think he's been doing really good work on this topic. Um, and also as one of the people who has resisted audience capture, right, who, um, you know, gets ratioed on Twitter because he defends the value of a tradition like hip hop and sort of some of the people who like him for other stuff he does then go, you know, apeshit over it. Um, uh, I disagree with him about thinking of wokeness as a literal religion. Um, And one of the reasons is that all of the things he says about wokeness being a literal religion would have been true of Marxism in, uh, you know, large parts of the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, right? The fact that people organize a lot of their life around it, that it gives them this kind of sense of how to fight for the future, um, you know, bring about the just world after some kind of cataclysmic, uh, revolution, um, you know, even down to some of the absurd cultural phenomena associated with these movements. Um, you know, uh, Ibram X. Kendi wrote a book called uh, Anti-Racist Baby, in which um, one of the absurd things is it's directed, I think, at kids that are like three to six years old. And it says, no, if you have committed a racist act, you must confess. Um, you know, a, a sentence that a four-year-old would not, I think, understand. Um, uh, but I was reading Orwell this summer, and there is George Orwell making fun of a lot of the kind of, he himself thought of himself as a socialist, but a lot of the sort of ineffective socialist organizing of his life, of his time, making fun of a book called uh, Marxism for Infants, right? So there is a kind of, you know, so, so I think that, you know, some political ideologies can have these deep believers who perhaps are, priests monkey or rabbis monkey, right? Who perhaps are people who have a kind of religious fervor which they believe in this ideology. But that is true of other political ideologies as well. That doesn't mark out uh, wokeness in, in, in any particular kind of way. So yes, wokeness fills for some people a religion-shaped hole. That doesn't mean that the ideology itself is the same as, as a religion. And by the way, even if it were, it wouldn't follow that argument doesn't matter. How did we have mass conversions moment? 
how did people go from being deeply, profoundly guided by their religions to being much more secular and much more accepting of basic liberal rules over the course of the last 300 years? Well, in part through arguing with them, right? And so even if the premise were true that this is just kind of a new religion, I don't think it follows that uh, it's just pointless to try and argue in the realm of ideas. I think that's a the, that's the important point. Although the if, to your first point, I would counter that a key phase in in the life arc of a religion, you have millennialism, and then millennialism fails. The prophecies disappoint. <laughs> the rubber met the road, and nothing happened. And something switches internally in the religion to accommodate for that. They did not become any less religious as a result, usually, but they have just adjusted the shape of their beliefs. When in the year 1000, Jesus didn't come, they have had to reinterpret and go to a more poetic reading or focus more on the martyrs instead of the uh, return. But isn't that what happened even if your case that Marxism was already a religion, isn't that what happened with the fall of the Soviet Union? And not just the fall itself, but also the, la- the, the, the decay of the Soviet Union and the recognition that, that Marxism, whether true Marxism has really been tried or not, the failure of it to materialize, the failure of the proletariat to unite has led to identity taking that place, but the religion obtained. Well, I, I think these are different religions, right? I mean, if you're asking, are, are people always going to have some kind of, is there always going to be a left that is deeply opposed to existing societies, even if these societies become more just over time? And will they have uh, views that share certain structures because they're founded on the rejection and critique of liberalism? Yes, of course, right? Um, but there's different moments at which they pose different levels of danger to the maintenance of, of these societies, right? And there was a moment when there was genuine danger in many democracies from, uh, you know, communist parties listening to Moscow um, for what could happen to those societies. And in the societies in which those parties won, the consequences were really, really bad. And that's not a huge life danger today, right? Today, there's a new kind of set of political beliefs, I would argue, for you can call them religious beliefs if you like, that I think with the right arguments, you can defang some of them. Now, some people might simply, uh, you know, some people are always going to find ways of re-justifying them, but there's always people who are on the margins, right, who saw the, the force, the real force of Marxist critique in 1900, when a lot of society really was desperately poor, and yet could be persuaded that Marxist revolutions were not, in fact, going to make the world a better place. There's people today, like Vanessa, who you know, um, feels the pull, and like me in certain ways, who feels the pull of all these critiques about uh, ongoing injustice and so on, um, but but who are not, you know, who are not like religious, fervent believers that, that somehow are so irrational that they're impervious to, to, to arguments about how some of those things can go wrong. So why are we calling this the identity synthesis? Wait, folks, I do need to go in like three minutes in part yeah. because the poor dog hasn't been outside in hours. No. <laughs> he, 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 I, I, you cannot be accused of being ungenerous with your time. But that's why I wanted to conclude with giving you a chance to explain why you want to call it the identity synthesis. 
Well, the identity synthesis, uh, first of all, is just a move where if you say the word woke on, you know, every third sentence in your book, you just sound like an old man shouting at the clouds. So I sort of try to avoid that. Why the identity synthesis? Well, because this is a new set of ideas that really fundamentally is based on collective identity. So one of the core claims that I reconstruct in one part of the book of this tradition is to say that the way to understand the world, the principal primary overriding way to understand the world is to look at it through the lens of identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. And further, uh, the way to make the world right, the way to make improvements is not to try and build a society that lives up to the universal values that uh, it has had, um, is not to make further progress towards actually making sure that members of minority groups come into the enjoyment of those kinds of values and rules. It is to make how you're treated and how we treat each other fundamentally dependent on the kind of groups into which we are born, on the kind of ascriptive identities we share as well. And so identity is at the very heart of this ideology. And it's a synthesis because it synthesizes all the kind of intellectual um, influences that we've chronicled in uh, you know, great detail in the first half of conversation. I think identity synthesis allows you to talk in clear ways about uh, what the ideology is about and allows you to talk about that in a way neutral enough that we can actually have a conversation about it. Because whatever, whichever side of this you ultimately fall on, one of the weird conjuring tricks of the last years is that you have to have sort of complete allegiance to this ideology and yet it supposedly doesn't exist. And, 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 and you know, clearly, if, if nothing else, I hope I've persuaded everyone who's listening of the fact that there's a really deep, interesting set of ideas that have come together, transformed the key ways, the key categories in which we think about the world, and that that is worth grappling with. Um, and I think that if you're arguing against it, you should argue from it, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say, from, from the moral high ground. I think one of the traps we fall into, and that I think we today hopefully have not fallen into, is that people either are so apologetic about disagreeing with those ideas that they, you know, give away the moral high grounds, I'm so nervous and guilty before we talk, but they sort of sound bad. Or they sort of say, nobody's going to listen to me anyway. Everybody's going to hate me for what I say, so I'm going to play the role of a jerk because screw them, you know? And I do actually think that the most effective way to argue against it, the right way, morally, intellectually, but also the most effective way to argue against it, say, no, I have deep fundamental convictions about how to make the world a better place. I care about making the world a better place. I just think that however interesting, however subtle some of these ideas are, they are not the right way to make the world a better place. And that is the the the, the deep conviction from which I'm approaching this conversation. I might be wrong. We all might be wrong. We all might be making mistakes, but I shouldn't be ashamed of what I'm arguing for because I have reflected on these ideas carefully and I'm I'm deeply convinced that 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 I'm standing up for something that's going to make life better for 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 all members of our society, and that's why I'm doing it. And I think that's the spirit in which we should take on these ideas. Yasha, thank you for joining us for this uh, epically length conversation. <laughs> yes, um, thank you. Listeners should get the identity trap, and if they haven't already, get the great experiment as well, and then listen to our conversation about it. Um, and and yeah, that's it. Yasha, thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like I'm your roommate now or something. I know. <laughs> you should just move on You're in. in. The third room. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right, you. Thanks, that was really Thank you again for listening to Uncertain Things. We are on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
give us a five-star review if you enjoyed and if not um just share us with your friends and enemies till next time stay sane I was thinking about the uh, the marriage council thing. <laughs> yes. I, the, 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 no, but because the funny thing is, I think for the most part, we both agree with this middle ground that there was no, there was nothing that I, I, I'm, I'm assuming from you, but certainly for me, there is nothing that I disagree with the way that he framed it. I, I also the my socialist. Uh, example was just to show that th- those are different things. Those are different sides of the equation. And the socialist at least has the benefit of <coughs> not being racist. But of course, I I, don't, I, I believe in, in, in a multifarious approach to any kind of analysis. When you're tackling real policy questions or real versions of justice, though, though I do have an asterisk about your use of the word justice, but when you're going about questions of justice, or social policy, whatever. I think I'm going my boss. I'm going to go with my boss's approach. My Jonah has one of his cliches as I, I hate monocausal explanations, and I think monocausal. Okay, yeah, resist monocausal explanations. If there's one truism that I do agree with, is just, just don't have monocausal explanations. If if you find that your entire brain is now or your entire political theory revolves around this singular thing that explains everything, then you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, same is, the same applies to class. And this is, this is my criticism of Batya, too. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. things always interrelate. I, I tend to lo- look at culture because that's the thing that interests me. That's when, uh, also where, uh, when it comes to racism and things like that, uh, racism, gender identity, I'm interested in this from the perspective of culture because I do think it's very meaningful in how it shapes identity and th- there's a lot to learn from this. So it's never about trying to say there is no such thing. I'm the culture guy. But when you're jumping into thinking about policy... The culture needs to play a role in thinking about those things, but also mediated by all those other dimensions, whether it's class or or even just big big consequences. Just maybe start from deciding what the what kind of ends are you seeking to get, and what kind of solutions are going to get you there. Putting aside those those other coloring effects, but either way, monocausal explanations bad. Um, sorry. <laughs> Agreed. 